Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Hello and welcome back from your weekend. Um, At least for the first two segments today, I think we do have kind of a through line. In our second segment today, believe it or not, we will be talking about the impact of bagels on climate change. Kind of, anyway. In in Montreal, where they're justifiably proud of their bagel culture, which is a little bit different from everybody else's bagel culture. A little bit like New Haven and pizza, particularly because it involves wood-burning stoves. And Montreal, environmentally, is beginning to rethink those wood-burning ovens that that make the bagels. Uh, And the question is, how much would you be willing to give up to save the planet? Would you be willing to give up the bagel that you love so much? But right now, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more directly about the climate and kind of who owns the weather. Uh, Joining us now... To talk about this is Andrew Friedman, editor for The Washington Post, focusing on extreme weather, climate change, science, and the environment. And it's not really who owns the weather so much as it is who owns uh, the weather data and the ability to forecast weather, the ability to charge money for weather data, all that stuff. So, Andrew Friedman, first of all, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Maybe we should just set this up because most of us, me included, even though I spent 16 years on one of those radio stations that gives you the weather three times every half hour, most of us don't think too much about weather prognostication, where it comes from. Basically, historically, it comes mainly from the National Weather Service, a government agency, correct? Yeah. Historically, it has been uh, the National Weather Service's role to gather all the data to disseminate it and to issue forecasts and warnings. And so a couple of things are happening here. We should also add to that that increasingly international cooperation has become important and valuable. Many people do remember how the so-called European model actually got Sandy right in a way that the American models didn't. So there's another component there, right, would be participation in the World Meteorological Organization. Yeah, the international system is crucial. Data flows across borders. Our satellites contribute to the European model, just like the European satellites contribute to the American uh, suite of computer models. So everything is kind of interlinked, just like everything in weather is linked, if you will. Right. What happens then historically is different people are interpreting the data, the data that comes out of the National Weather Service. Although that's changing, it's one of the points of your article. But maybe we should just stop and talk about the fact that there's sort of gold in them, there are clouds. There's a way in which uh, weather is valuable in an age of extreme weather and a weather that can drastically affect even the GDP of the United States. The ability to deliver accurate, timely information about weather is probably more valuable than ever. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, definitely. The private sector weather forecasting, um, analysis, and 
analytics companies as well as satellite companies are now around a $7 billion industry and increasing pretty quickly. So the ability to, I mean, there's a, a now somewhat infamous CNBC clip where Joel Myers, one of the three brothers involved in AccuWeather, talks about delivering information about a tornado to a railroad companies so that they stop their trains on the tracks and the tornado actually sort of zips through the two-mile corridor separating these two trains. And then he adds, tragically, the town that the tornado was heading for didn't subscribe to AccuWeather, so they didn't get that information. So that's a fairly grisly uh, version of this, but there's a way in which you could be looking at, maybe already are looking at, tiers of information, tiers, different levels of knowledge and predictive data about the weather. Yeah, definitely. Um, that is what, you know, people in the National Weather Service, people who uh, really care about the life uh, protection and property protection uh, safety value of having a, a strong and accurate uh, National Weather Service and its infrastructure are really worried about where things are going in the next decade or less. As private companies can do more and more, they can develop their own computer models, they can go global with their computer models, they can launch their own satellite networks, they can issue pinpoint forecasts and warnings. And a lot of it has been, you know, tailoring different products to companies. So energy companies, Wall Street, a lot of those get weather information from uh, specialized sort of companies that provide it for, you know, traders on Wall Street or for energy companies that need to know what heating degree days look like over the course of a winter. But the issue of who provides a like a tornado warning and who gets that and uh, how they get it and do they pay for it? And is there a future in which as Americans, you know, the top 1% of the population can pay for a better weather forecast and a better weather warning and be more likely to be safe uh, than, you know, somebody who's in the middle class, for example, and relies on a different app or uh, the, the National Weather Service warning, for example. So those are kind of the weather dystopia that people are thinking about. So on the one hand, you get these startups uh, that are able to put very small, tiny little satellites up in the sky to collect more data. There's there's just more data generally. I think most smartphones, for example, contain barometers. Chances are some of that information is getting kind of fed back through smartphone companies to data collectors. There's just a lot of information out there. Is there any kind of countervailing argument that with so much data out there and increasingly the uh, sort of amateur mavens now have their own little weather stations that in some cases I think are you know fairly sophisticated and provide data to the National Weather Service, provide data to, for example, Weather Underground, which I think is consists of 250,000 of these weather stations. Is there sort of any argument that there's just so much out there and so much increased capacity that there'll be enough open source material that we won't have to worry about the kind of paywalling that you just described? Part of that rests 
on whether Underground has that network of uh, surface stations. So, for example, you can put a weather station up in your backyard uh, for a couple hundred dollars and connect it to Weather Underground's network, and it gets fed into their website and computer modeling. But Weather Underground is actually owned by IBM. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that data gets fed into IBM's different products that they issue. So the profit motive there does come into play, even if, you know, that stuff looks open source. Um, But the National Weather Service is increasingly reliant on the private sector and individuals to go out there and collect weather information as they cut back on some of the data gathering to focus on bigger ticket items like new satellites that they need to launch, that sort of thing. There's a further level of confusion here, and that is, at least in the Trump administration, there's a real blurring of public and private, and it's symbolized, I think, this nomination has now been withdrawn for medical reasons, but for a long time, he and his administration were fighting to get this guy, Barry Myers, confirmed as head of NOAA. NOAA is what sits on top of uh, the National Weather Service, and Barry Myers is one of three brothers involved in the company I mentioned a few minutes ago, weather. So this is a guy from the private sector who's been working, whose family, and I think some other other members, like his daughter or son or son-in-law, he's got other people. It's a big family business. And what they've been doing is exactly what you've described, right? Selling their own proprietary version of the weather to paying clients. Yes. And they are a company that has been very aggressive at advocating for a smaller role for the National Weather Service. You have companies like the Weather Company owned by IBM that are largely cooperating with the university sector and with the National Weather Service. And then you have AccuWeather, which has a history of donating to politicians who then sponsor bills that would take away a lot of functions from the National Weather Service, for example. Now, AccuWeather would argue that that's kind of ancient history because that did happen, you know, about a decade or so ago. But the weather community is relatively tight-knit, and they have long memories, and they're very suspicious of that company. To nominate a non-scientist to head Uh, one of the most important science agencies in the government is notable in the first place. And then to nominate somebody whose business uh, would still potentially benefit from decisions that they make, even though they divested themselves, it would affect the family. So that was a problematic nomination and it sat uh, for a couple years and has recently not been officially withdrawn yet, but but Barry Myers did ask to withdraw. Um, They just haven't completed the polling of the nomination from the Senate, but his nomination was basically just sitting there. So NOAA has an acting administrator. They have gone the longest that they've ever gone since they were created in 1970 without a presidentially uh, nominated administrator at this point. This is a really complicated subject, and I want to make sure that we get some of the valences right here. So one of the things I think that has changed is, you know, if you go back a ways, the private sector wouldn't really want the National Weather Service or NOAA to cut back on their 
data gathering activities because they were better at it than anybody else. And, and because basically most of the private sector was dependent on the government to provide that raw data collection and to provide all of this, not just raw data, but you know, pretty nuanced information about what's happening with weather systems. Is part of the change here that for the first time, it might be in the private sector's better interest for the National Weather Service to do less because they now in the private sector can do more? Yeah, that's part of it because uh, there's a drastically decreasing cost of access to low Earth orbit. So everybody from the Environmental Defense Fund to companies like Spire and others are launching uh, satellites to monitor everything from methane emissions to doing these relatively complex observations of the movement of water vapor and humidity, you know, in in the Earth's atmosphere to then either potentially sell that data to the Weather Service, which is a kind of a, a new thing, or to use in computer models for themselves. But there are companies like Climacell is, is an interesting case. Um, this is a Boston-based company started by uh, a group of ex-Israeli military folks who all graduated from elite uh, management business-type schools in the Boston area after they got out of the military and started a company that uh, is using new sources of data. So it's proprietary, but a lot of it has to do with uh, cell phones and cell phone communication and the way that those signals indicate what the weather is like in between, you know, a cell tower and a cell phone and that sort of thing. And they're making micro weather uh, forecasts for JetBlue, for example, at Logan Airport and other airports for the airline. They're not doing that based on the data coming from the weather service. They're doing that based on the data that they gather and the computer model that they develop. So it's becoming more and more possible for a company like that or a company like IBM, which just rolled out the first ever global computer model from a private company that could potentially benefit millions of people around the world that don't have access to accurate computer models. You know, we're talking about people in Africa, people in uh, South Asia whose governments don't have uh, the infrastructure that we do and are not providing that information. But you know, they're really in it to make money off of that computer model and off of what what they can tailor to businesses as a result. But it's becoming just based on like three or four things, AI on machine learning and on uh, the uh, reduction in cost of access to space. Uh, These companies are, are more able to kind of exist on their own. And within this ecosystem, um, they still say that they need the data, they need the infrastructure provided by the government, they need the public good that that provides. Uh, You know, these companies are launching very small satellites that only exist in orbit for a certain period of time, whereas, you know, NOAA launches, GOES, and polar orbiting satellites that are up there for years um, and are the size of, like, you know, a Mack truck and cost a couple billion dollars. So, we're just at an inflection point where it's now the private companies are, are capable of doing much more on their own. And that may encourage public policymakers to cut back on what the National Weather Service is doing because we're also approaching 
a time when a new modernization effort is going to be necessary for the Weather Service, for their network of Doppler radars. And they're going to have a lot of basic questions, like how many Weather Service forecast offices do you need across the country? Or do we want to consolidate them into regional centers and eliminate a lot of jobs or make people move? Um, And we've seen the Trump administration do that to other agencies, uh, especially in the Interior Department and Agriculture Department. So there's a lot at play right now. Right. I mean, one of the fears, I think, would be, and if you work for The Washington Post, you're probably more familiar with this than I am, just to use another analogy, increasingly, um, there are these public-private partnerships in transportation, and sometimes they involve things like HOV hotlines. So uh, if you're a single occupant of a motor vehicle and you want to go faster than some of the people around you, you can get onto an HOV lane and pay more. You can pay $8 or $5 or something to get to work on time. And obviously, that's a little bit troubling because it really does seem to create a class system for the use of what we think of a public as a public conveyance, like a, an interstate highway system. So, And I guess this is sort of the question now, too. If National Weather Service and NOAA can't keep up with the private sector, but the private sector charges uh, for this kind of information, would the fear be that, I don't know, a bunch of kids sitting in a school would know less about an onrushing storm than somebody a few buildings away who'd been able to pay for this really bespoke information? Yeah, I, I think that's the exact fear that's coming up. And that's the exact thing that NOAA officials are working to prevent and that they're thinking through when they think about their relationship with the private sector and how much data to buy from the private sector and how they can evolve their computer modeling capabilities to take back the global lead from the European model and from the Canadian model, which is also beating the United States right now, too, which is kind of interesting. And NOAA is trying to establish this new center that's going to be outside of NOAA physically and funded by the agency, but also funded by universities and private companies to bring everybody together to form the next generation of computer modeling. But this is kind of a fragile time for that type of uh, center because uh, they're just trying to get it off the ground. NOAA has an acting administrator, which reduces their political clout a little bit, and they need the money for it. You know, it's going to be a couple of years before that really gets off the ground. But exactly what you just said in terms of, you know, you could also compare it to the fears over a two-tiered system for the internet, where people who could pay more get a faster internet than people who can't. And that puts people at a, you know, huge potential disadvantage on just getting information of all kinds. I think that there is widespread agreement in Congress and among the private sector that the Weather Service should be doing watches and warnings and the official watches and warnings, partly because of liability reasons. But it's also problematic because if you're going to issue watches and warnings, you also have to do lots of other things, too, that lead up to making those things accurate. So you also have to do lots of observations. You also have to do lots of other forecasts to get those watches and warnings correct. And there isn't necessarily as much consensus going into the next several years that the Weather Service uh, should be doing that. 
It seems to me that one of the advantages that NOAA and the National Weather Service have is quote unquote branding. You know, I'm not a particularly sophisticated consumer. So if you said, look, I'll give you a choice between information provided by the National Weather Service and something started up by three Israeli veterans or some company called Spire that I've never heard of that existed for the last three to five years or something. Well, from my point of view, startups come and go. Some of them are really good. Some of them, you know, are over leveraged. I I, I don't know. I'd rather have this thing that's been around for a really long time and has this well understood quality and i guess i guess the question is how long does that persevere and particularly if there's some minute erosion of the quality of the national weather service brand i think that just from a branding perspective they have a huge advantage given that their history goes back to the you know us signal service mm-hmm. when they were back in the us army however when we come to the expansion of environmental forecasting that's going to be necessary over the next decade um, we're talking about king tide forecast and sea level rise assessments harmful algal blooms, um, even disease outbreak forecasts that you can do based on what the weather is and the range of certain mosquitoes. These types of forecasts are not NOAA's tried, true, and tested type thing, um, although they do do a uh, an outlook every year for the Gulf of Mexico dead zone, which is a uh, harmful algal bloom, essentially. But There's going to be lots of other things that we need to forecast. And the thinking right now is that there are companies that are positioning themselves as the leaders in those assessments, and they do charge for them. So companies like Jupiter Intelligence is one to keep an eye on. Hmm. Because if you're thinking about buying a shoreline home, chances are that during the course of a 30-year mortgage, that home, depending exactly where it is, is going to be flooded multiple times due to sea level rise and storms. That wasn't the case 30 years ago. But to get an assessment of what the risk exactly is, it's not going to come from NOAA for free and it's not going to come from FEMA for free. They're both kind of behind the ballgame on those types of assessments, and they're doing it for larger areas. You're going to have to go to some sort of consultant and pay them to get a detailed assessment. And that's part of what Jupiter does and what other companies are doing to you know, advance risk analysis into this new era of climate consequences. And some people listening to this will will say, well, good. I mean, if there's a certain kind of granular or you know very, very specifically tailored kind of information that's newly available because of advances in technology and NOAA can't figure out how to do it, it's good that somebody can, if they want to and they have the means, can can get that information from, from somebody else. It's sort of some people will say, well, that's how capitalism works. But it's, we still come back to the question of, you know, we want a high-functioning weather agency within our government. And so my last question was, is... So many of the things that President Trump does seem a little bit silly in the moment. And then you step back and you think, was there a more subtle message there? And I wonder now about that moment with the hurricane that wasn't heading towards Alabama, but he insisted it was. And then suddenly there was this kind of Sharpie drawing, kind of altering the map. And there was a way in which it seemed as though uh, NOAA itself was being brought to heel and climate scientists within the National Weather Service were being spanked for 
actually providing accurate information about where the hurricane wasn't going, parentheses Alabama, close parentheses. You sort of wonder now, what was that all about? Was it a bit of theater that had a message? Yeah, I think the thing about, you know, we covered that and are still covering it because we have a number of Freedom of Information Act requests that are still out. But the deal there was it's an extremely serious thing when you erode the public trust in a scientific agency that has the responsibility of protecting life and property. And the message that the administration sent was essentially you know, we don't really care what the weather forecast actually said. It needs to have said this. <laughs> and that sent a very demoralizing message and a very 1984-ish message to the rank and file of the National Weather Service. Now, what actually happened within the agency is that the National Weather Service director stuck up for his troops and made a pretty big speech a few days later that threw the top leaders at NOAA, which are politically appointed people, under the bus. And those NOAA officials have then since thrown under the bus the people at the Commerce Department, which is the department where NOAA is. And the backstory of that is fascinating, dating back to Richard Nixon. But the real point underlying all this, the real disturbing aspect of this is that the administration showed a real disregard for the need to protect the reputation of an agency that when they issue a tornado warning, people act on that. And they only have eight or nine minutes to act on based on the average tornado warning lead time. And if I get that wrong off the top of my head, please forgive me. But uh, it may be up to 13 minutes or so. I, I can't remember. But the point is, that they issue products that people need to respond to and they need to respond to based on trust. And so they eroded the trust of that agency and they showed that they are probably willing to do it again. So I think that people at NOAA at the Weather Service are kind of bracing for whatever the next event is that ensnares them in some unexpected controversy. Well, thank you, Andrew Friedman. Uh, it's either 1984. It might be Louis XIV, though, you know, l'état, c'est moi. Whatever I say is essentially what the government is going to say. Andrew Friedman is editor for The Washington Post, focusing on extreme weather, climate change, science, and the environment. Thanks for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. I don't know if this counts as a Papoulian through line, but from here, we're going to go to a segment about bagels in Montreal, which you would think maybe there is no through line, except that there's a climate change uh, concern here. There's wood ovens being used to make Montreal's distinctive bagels. Do they need to go? We'll be back. I don't know. We are back. Hold on. Let me just there. Now we're really back. Let me uh, confess to something, which is I kind of lied in the segue from the last segment to this segment because I said that there was something, some connection between the wood-fired ovens of Montreal's uh, famous bagels 
in climate change. This isn't exactly true, as we're about to find out. It has really more to do with particulate pollution, fine particulate pollution, the air quality itself in Montreal. Uh, Whether it's connected to climate change or not might be kind of an open question. However, we're also getting ahead of the story right now. Joining us is Dan Bolevsky, Canada correspondent for the New York Times based in Montreal, uh, to tell us the story of the bagel, the latest bagel crisis in Montreal. Welcome to our show. Thanks so much. So there's two things that we need to sort of explain to people, particularly people who haven't been to Montreal very much. The first is that they are really kind of famous for their bagel culture. They're famous in particular for two bagel uh, places in, in Mile End that compete with one another. People wait in line to get these bagels, which is why I've never had one because I can't stand <laughs> the idea of waiting in line. Uh, but so explain. What's, a, what's the big sure. deal with the Montreal bagel? Sure. So there are three iconic foods in Montreal, you know, one of which is poutine, this mm-hmm. gravy-drenched french fries, then you have smoked meat, and then the third are bagels. And the Montreal bagel is very unique compared to the New York bagel or the London bagel, because the Montreal bagel is boiled in um, honey-infused water and then baked in a wood-fire oven, producing, you know, crispy bagel with a tinge of sweetness in it that has been celebrated across the world. Right. It, it, now, yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, keep Well, going. and to answer your second question, within the pantheon of bagels in Montreal, there are two competing bagel places that are a bit like the Yankees versus the Mets. Uh, one is called Fairmont Bagel. The other is called Saint-Viateur Bagel. They're both in the same hipster neighborhood <laughs> in Montreal, and they both claim to be the oldest uh, bagel place in town. Yeah, one of them claims to have been the first bagel in space and stuff like that too, right? Well, to be fair, uh, the gentleman, Erwin uh, Schlafman, owner of Fairmont Bagel, boasts that his bagels were the first in outer space, and that's actually founded on reality because his cousin uh, is a Canadian astronaut who brought uh, 16 sesame seed bagels <laughs> to the International Space Station a few years ago. Um, all right, so <laughs> yeah, so uh, we'll come back a little bit maybe to these bagel wars, cause, sure. and they are. It is one of those things where... People have arguments about which one is better and stuff. And, and sure. New Haven's pizza culture is very similar. New uh-huh. Haven, Connecticut has these kind of uh, these three iconic pizza places, and they also are cooked in wood ovens. And fights break out among people about whether Sally's is better than Pepe's and stuff like that. Anyway, so the other thing that's happening is that Montreal is, in a very general way, worried about wood smoke pollution and, and has taken some pretty unusual steps. I mean, I guess these are some of these steps are not just Montreal, but but by in larger geographic areas. But this idea of people living closely yeah. packed together, heating their houses with, uh, with wood-fired he- uh, heat sources uh, has supposedly produced some fairly dangerous, maybe even for some people, lethal sources of pollution. So what have they been doing about it? So in terms of, well, generally speaking, the, you know, wood fires uh, in houses have been banned. In this case with the bagels, uh, which are made in these wood fire ovens, they emit fine particles that, you, as you mentioned, that can aggravate respiratory ailments like asthma, and the smoke can also produce benzene. So it's created this culture clash between you know, people who love the bagels, which are made in these ovens, and neighbors in the area who complain you know, that the smoke is bad for their health and bad for the environment. So it's like this classic case, and we see this playing out across the U.S. and globally, where you have tradition rubbing up against concerns about the environment. And in this case, you know, 
the proponents of the bagels are saying, you know, lay, you know, they want to fight the environment, but lay off my bagels. Right. And the way that I understood it most recently, there may have been new developments, but uh-huh. the way that I understood it recently, the old existing wood-fired bagel ovens were sort of sunsetted or grandfathered into Absolutely. this, which is Absolutely. actually, from a certain point of view, creates a tremendous commercial advantage to those yes. places. Nobody can get into the bagel game with a wood-fired oven anymore. No newcomer. Absolutely. So in this kind of bagel epicenter in Montreal, which is called Mile End, which is a bit like Williamsburg, Brooklyn, this kind of hipster enclave this district has banned these wood-burning ovens going forward, but they've grandfathered the places that already have them. So this has created some alarm that it could challenge the art of bagel-making going further, going into the future. Um, but uh, indeed, there's also a discussion across the city uh, to force places that that uh, have wood-burning ovens, so places like pizzerias or uh, rotisserie chicken places to have filters in these ovens. Right. I mean, and in, play, and in fact, some places are, are starting to put those in. Yeah, I want to come back to that in just a second because I think that's an interesting part of it. And sure. we should say that that when at the time, I think it was basically about a year ago, that yeah. the city began to take pretty significant steps against even domestic people with fireplaces or wood burning yeah. stoves. And you essentially, yeah. it's sort of like, you know, an American gun owner's nightmare. You have to register your fireplace or register your stove with the city and say right. what, kind, what it is. And I mean, if it's a newer one and does have, uh, air purifiers right. or some kind of scrubbing component, it's okay, but then the other ones you can't right. use anymore. I mean, this is pretty right. serious stuff they're doing. Well, look, Canada is a place where global warming, which you mentioned earlier, is obviously a huge issue. And so, again, you know, these bagels have become a flashpoint uh, in the desire to be environmentally friendly, but at the same time, you know, to preserve this, this dish that uh, cuts at the core of what it means to be a Montrealer and what it means to be Canadian, because these bagels are famous not just in Montreal, but all over the country and also in the world. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, although one thing that uh, your article makes clear is that it's one thing for, I mean, I love to go to Montreal. I go up there a lot. Uh, it's one thing for tourists to come up there and, and love these bagels. But I talk about not in my backyard. If you're uh, in the backyard of one of these bagel places, there's a chance you're going to get a lot of smoke coming in your windows. It's not fun for the neighbors. The neighbors, some of the neighbors in the, in the proximity of these bagel places told me that in the summer, you know, they can't have their windows open because the toxic smoke was wafting into the windows. At the same time, my impression, although you have neighbors who are not talking to other neighbors because of the bagel battle, <laughs> generally speaking, the, you know, the proponents of the bagels out, seem to outweigh the NIMBYs for, uh, for the time being. But it, it's so emotional and people are so upset that, yeah, you have some neighbors who are not talking to other neighbors all because of a bagel. Right. So we should... Uh, I'm curious to know whether the current question of the wood-burning smoke and the maybe possible more enforcement uh, to come, um, did it unite at all the divisions that were caused between proponents or or fans uh, of Fairmount versus Saint-Viateur? It's a very good uh, question. So essentially, the two owners of Saint-Viateur and Fairmount, you know, have this rivalry going back decades um, you know, as I said, both claim to be the oldest bagel shop in town. Uh, one, you know, says he sent his bagels to space. Uh, Fairmount sends, says that all bagels should be symmetrical. Sambiatur replies that nonsense, all bagels are like snowflakes. That they have different sizes. Yet amid all this acrimony over the bagels, the two of them have come together uh, against this threat of environmentalists seeking to get rid of the wood-burning ovens because their argument 
is that in the absence of the wood burning ovens, the Montreal bagel ceases to be the Montreal bagel. Right, and it does seem as though uh, you know this. This really is kind of the world in a nutshell here. That that way in uh-huh. which this. You know, you have Canada, I think, is a pretty environmentally conscientious country, certainly more so than the USA currently is. They take a lot of this stuff seriously until it gets down to the nitty gritty, until it gets down to something like this, where, you know, people, and and it's clear in your article, too, people who would otherwise self-identify as environmentalists, as clean air proponents, they're just not going to give, they're not going to yield on this one thing. Absolutely. But paradoxically, I mean, I spoke to environmental scientists who said, you know, who are also bagel lovers and basically said, you know, at the end of the day, some things just bring you pleasure and comfort. And, you know, so the bagels is not something we want to, you know, legislate over. So, again, it kind of raises this issue. We all want to be good citizens when it comes to the environment. But at what cost? And when it comes to beloved things like the bagels, for many people, that is a step too far. I guess the, then the question becomes, and you've already hinted at this, but if we yeah. can send bagels to the space station, why can't right. we have a relatively clean burning, you know, wood fired bagel oven? Why can't technology somehow or other scrub some of the smoke coming from the oven? Well, first of all, I think, you know, I'm not an expert in bagel oven technology, but there are filters that and, and eco logs that can be used in these ovens that can offset the pollution. And moreover, I mean, some people have said that beyond the lore of having the bagels made in wood-burning ovens, you could actually make a Montreal bagel with another heat source, with gas, for example, and it would taste just as good. But, you know, of course, the argument is that the lore of the oven, the, the, the supernatural alchemy of the smoke mingling with the dough, you know, creates this taste that, you know, cannot be quantified or qualified. And so it's that alchemy that these ovens preserve. And of course, you know, lore and history and practices going back decades at the artisanship of making a bagel, you know, these are things that that people do not want to mess with. All right, so uh, we're going to wrap this up here. Other than I would really love to get you, Dan Bilevsky, into a tremendous ah. amount of trouble. So Fairmount oh, yeah. or Saint Viateur, have you picked ah. a side? You know, uh, at the risk of being deported, I'm going to remain agnostic <laughs> on that question. However, the only thing I will say is that my personal opinion on bagels depends on when you go into one of these places, mm. sometimes they give you the bagels right out of the oven. Right. There's just nothing oh, yeah. more beautiful than a piping hot Montreal bagel. Oh, I bet. So, uh, yeah, no, you're wise to do that. I remember Trudeau, he went to sh- the place across the street from Schwartz's Deli uh, when he visited uh-huh. Montreal. That caused all kinds of trouble. So that was smoked meat, though. That wasn't bagels. That was a whole other Absolutely. area. So we're, the one th- we're a big food town. We're a big food town, and we take it very seriously. You don't have to tell me. Uh, all right, so we're going to pause there. Other than to say that one thing that possibly unites uh, people who get moody about bagels would be the moodiness of the late Leonard Cohen. So let's go out with him. Thanks for the dance I'm sorry you're tired The evening has hardly begun Thanks for the dance Try to look inspired One, two, three, one, two, three, one All right. Uh, I forgot to type up the credits for Wolfie to do today. So first of all, I'll say 
this is the Colin McEnroe Show on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm supposed to do that. Hey, that's called resetting, and I never do it. <laughs> I'm so proud of myself. Um, second thing I have to say is that we're starting a new show on impeachment. Uh, it's called Pardon Me, another damn impeachment show. Uh, it's going to be uh, offered as a podcast, but also on the air Saturdays at noon, right after Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Uh, and it's going to kind of combine s- some pretty, we think, um, helpful political and uh, and jurisprudence-oriented updates on the case, but also some stuff about the kind of cultural impact of it, word trends that are emerging from it, things like that. So, uh, how and the ways in which the political process and culture intersect, which, as you may know, is a favorite topic of ours anyway. So anyway, that's coming up. Uh, thanks to uh, Betsy Kaplan for um, producing today's show, for Kion Wolf for making it sound great, our terrific intern Kevin for manning the phones, and I'm sure there's other people that I need to thank, but I don't know who they are right now off the top of my head. Um, so, although for those of you who just heard the promo, not all of you will have, but who just heard the little promo for the plot uh, at the Yale Rep, uh, tomorrow, Jonathan McPants and I are going down to interview Will Eno, the playwright, and Harris Eulen, the legendary Harris Eulen, the amazing uh, actor that you've seen in so many movies and TV shows, who at the age of 82 is like better than ever. We actually saw the play this weekend, and it's I actually think it's a really good play. Anyway, so t- we have one more thing to talk about today, and that is the the humble, the noble apostrophe. Um, now, the apostrophe is, you know, not in itself a good thing or a bad thing. It's more how it gets used, uh, into whose hands the apostrophe might fall. But as you know, if you've ever driven down the road and seen a sign advertising your opportunity to purchase night crawlers, R apostrophe S, you know that people often sprinkle apostrophes where they're not needed. And for that reason, something called the Apostrophe Protection Society was formed uh, by a man named John Richards uh, over in uh, jolly old England. Uh, And but it became an international thing pretty quickly. uh, And this noble man, this great man has announced uh, over the weekend that he gives up. He gives up that laziness and ignorance have won the day, and he's just not ready to fight the fight anymore against the gratuitous apostrophe or the, I think, less common omitted but necessary apostrophe. Uh, But uh, one person who's at least willing to talk to us about it, if not fighting the fight, we'll see about her her fighting um, appetite. Uh, Emily Brewster, senior editor and lexicographer at Merriam-Webster. Welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. So, um, first of all, what was your reaction when you either heard or read that uh, this apostrophe protection society is basically like a camel in Lawrence of Arabia, just going to drop to the sand and die? <laughs> well, my understanding is that it's not. Uh, the web page is still active. Um, I was a little surprised, really. Uh, not that the the creator of the of the society wanted to give up the mantle. I believe he is 96 years old, so certainly entitled to take a break. Um, but I thought that I was a little surprised that no one, no one, no successor was waiting eagerly to take over the responsibility because I think people still feel very strongly about apostrophes. Well, I mean, you could be that successor, right? Do you feel strongly about apostrophes? Well, I do not. As a lexicographer, my my job is really to observe the language as a as a, a, a disinterested party. Well, very interested, but uh, you know, not uh, as as an impartial observer. 
So, so you can't afford to be passionate about it. And, and also, I mean, I know from your colleague, Peter Sokolowski, that you guys are, you know, always balancing that knife's edge between being prescriptive and, you know, and descriptive, but probably more descriptive than prescriptive about how the language gets used and how it changes. So one argument could be made, well, if people don't know how to use them correctly anymore, then that's the state of the language. The state of the English language is that. ITS and IT apostrophe S become more or less interchangeable. I don't know. Does that curdle your blood at all? Well, actually, they they historically were reversed, mm. so it doesn't. I mean, in some ways, if you take a long a long view of the language, what you will see is that apostrophe use has not been stable for for centuries. I mean, it just never has been really. Um, and certainly, it's and it's used to be used exactly oppositely. So if you read Thomas Jefferson or Jane Austen, you will see that their IT apostrophe S is for possession instead of for the contraction it is. Okay, so that was a bad example then. Um, so, I mean, you know, it is not unusual, I'm told, to get, you know, one of those Christmas letter, Christmas letter postcards. Uh, cards that have sort of a little letter from the family and it will say Merry Christmas from the Stallworths and then it's either H apostrophe S or THS apostrophe where in fact there's no apostrophe needed there whatsoever. So once again, I mean, first of all, you don't want to be the kind of person who writes back to the Stallworths to their lovely holiday letter saying, you know, you've completely misused a punctuation mark. <laughs> you don't want to be that person. But is there any argument for being that person anyway, just to keep things intact and working? Well, that, that example is a really good one because people feel very passionately, right? The stalwarts, the, the S is supposed to tell you that it's a, it's a group of people. It's a family of people. And by putting an apostrophe there, it's suggesting that one stalwart owns something, right? The apostrophe S most of the time is about possession. And um, I, I, uh, I mean, I, I, I fully respect people who, who um, know these rules and appreciate them and abide by them, and I actually don't see them fading from published, edited text. But the amount of, of written word that, that people encounter now is, is so much broader. The kind of, of written language that we encounter now is just far vaster than it ever was. We don't just read books and newspapers and journals and magazines from published, uh, from publications where they have a staff of, I mean, and, and, and that's another issue also, right, that these um, publications are reducing the number of staff people they have who monitor these sorts of changes. And then at the same time, we're just encountering much more informal written language all the time in our texts and in our blog posts and in our social media posts. And so we're seeing um, this really informal, unguarded use of the language in a way that we, we really never had had until the advent of, of the internet. Right. So w there's also, also been arguments about whether there should be apostrophes in signs like St. Dominic's place or something like that, uh, whether there should be an apostrophe S because it might screw up the GPS thing. It might not be able to read that, uh, that apostrophe. There is, however, at least one person, one anonymous, risk-taking, non-superhero person who apparently runs around uh, Bristol uh, in the United Kingdom uh, trying to fix up, either add or subtract of apostrophes which have been foolishly bestowed or withheld. Uh, here's a clip. Well, it just really annoys me when I see apostrophes on sign that are just completely wrong. Apostrophes that should not be there or maybe apostrophes that need to be there. 
I, I do take it to heart. I've been doing it for quite a lot of years now. I've done put in quite a lot of time because I, I do think it's a cause worth pursuing. So there you go. There's there's actually somebody who in the dead of night uh, goes in and either paints over or draws in those apostrophes. But I, I mean, your argument is sort of technology-based, right? As digital technology exposes us more to the writing of people who don't ordinarily write that much and don't feel like or know enough to follow the rules, that becomes the state of the language? Well, to some degree it does, but we do still have this more guarded language that we see in books and newspapers and magazines, and certainly that is what the dictionary pays closer attention to because we feel like our job is our job is to monitor the established language as as represented in this in this kind of more stable record that exists in what is published and edited um, but i think you know i mean the the language itself is this giant unwieldy thing that belongs to all of its users and it it is going to it's going to continue expanding and shifting and changing and i i find that looking at um at history is is helpful for uh, any anxiety that a person might feel about this change we can look at early english and it just it just doesn't look anything like current english um and and as far as apostrophes go specifically shakespeare hardly used them at all and um you know certainly no one would no one doesn't think that he was a a, a competent and and brilliant user of the language. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I think having passion about language is a wonderful thing. And I, I, uh, I, 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 I applaud people who are passionate about apostrophes and who are passionate about language generally. Well, I'm not doing any better job of getting you to take a risky position about apostrophes than I did the previous guest uh, to take a risky uh, position about Montreal bagels. So I'm just going to call it a day. But Emily Brewster, senior editor and lexicographer at Merriam-Webster, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, you're very welcome. And I will say that I I guarantee you that we're going to put the webpage for this show up today. And if I have my way, Betsy Kaplan will deliberately make an apostrophe mistake that we will make to amuse you and to reflect the tenor of this show in the headline, and people are going to tell us we got it wrong. Because that th- there really is still a whole group of people, one of whom I went to college with, <laughs> who get very, very upset about this and don't even like it if you're doing it on purpose to make a joke, which I want to emphasize again, is what we'll probably be doing later today. 